I love climbing things. I love climbing pretty much anything and everything, whether it's rocks, trees, cabinets, inside and outside, I love climbing everything. And I think part of that, as you would probably imagine, is partly because of my size, uh, because I'm a smaller person. Sometimes it's nice to to literally be able to rise up above everyone else and get a different perspective on the world. Um, Plus, at times, simple tasks like even just eating a meal in the past have required me to climb. When I was younger, I'll be honest, it, it took me quite a few years to get to a height where I could even reach the plates and cups in the cabinet. And so even if I want to just eat something, I would have to climb up. Um, and um, I still resign myself to the fact that I will probably, well, I definitely will never be able to reach the top cabinets. Um, and reaching something up there, were, up there will always be an, an athletic event for me, but that's besides the point. Um, I say that to say... I love climbing. I haven't gotten to do much of it lately. However, I've had a renewed passion and and just interest and zeal for it because uh, a couple weeks ago I found out that they're going to be building a new climbing gym here in Urbana. And so uh, I think like most other people, uh, when I get a real strong interest in something or have a hobby that I'm looking into, I go to YouTube. I look up tons and tons of videos on it. And that's what I've been doing with climbing. And I've just been watching lots of videos on people, uh, like, there's, there's competitions for rock climbing. I'm not sure if you knew that. Um, there's big events, international events for it. And people compete against each other. And I've been watching videos about um, those types of competitions. And I've been paying particular attention to one form of rock climbing called bouldering. That's where you don't use ropes or harnesses. It's um, usually the walls are shorter. They're only about 15 to 20 feet high. And the goal, the difficulty in it is not based upon the height of it. It's not an endurance race in a sense. Um, With bouldering, the difficulty is found in the positioning and the style of the handholds. Usually it forces you to get into really weird contorted positions just to climb the wall. I was watching one where people actually had to hold on and flip themselves over upside down while they're hanging onto a wall just so that they could get up to the next, the next handhold. And usually the handholds are ridiculously small and inconvenient for gripping. And um, I am just blown away by the skill that some people have. Um, I think it, like... Some of them, it seems like, put Spider-Man to shame, honestly. It's incredible what some people can do. Now, the reality is, nobody gets like that just by trying it once. You get like that in bouldering because you try and practice the same course over and over again. So you figure out the best way to do it. You know exactly what handholds you're going to use. You know exactly what kind of position you're going to take to climb. And... So it's just practicing that over and over, memorizing exactly how you have to hold it um, so that you can complete the course. It almost becomes second nature to you. That's That's how climbers get so good. No one is able to hold on to their own weight with just a few fingers and a crack the width of a pencil without any practice. But let me ask you this. What if, what if they had to? What if the wall was 
100 feet rather than just 15, and they only had one chance to climb it because if they fell, they would fall to their death. Do you think anyone would actually do that? Do you think that would be a sport? I don't think so. Even, even experts in climbing would need some direction to know the route to take and that they would be capable of doing it themselves. They would need to know exactly what to do. They would need guidance. Now, the reality is, though, what if I told you that we're already climbing, in a sense? All of us are. What if I told you that we're all spending our lives on the side of a mountain, on the side of a cliff face? Now, most of us don't face daily imminent physical danger, and so it's easy to disregard what I'm saying, but the reality is that we really are those people who've started up the ascent up a ridiculously high mountain, and there's nowhere we can go but up. That is, in a sense, what the Christian life is. Now, don't get me wrong. There's times when the journey isn't terrifying, when it's joyful, when it's, um, it's pleasant, when the mountain is sloped very gradually. It's a pleasant walk. You get to see a beautiful landscape. It's not a difficult climb. But at other times, and we've all been there, there's times when the journey seems like it's a sheer cliff face. We all know those times when every move is painful and it seems like one misplaced grab would mean falling into an abyss. Some of you might be at that point right now, actually. Now, regardless of where you are in that journey, we need scripture. We won't know the route to take unless we do. Just like rock climbers, just like people that do bouldering need to know exactly where to grab and how to grab it, we need that in our pursuit. And that's where, that's where scripture comes in. Your life depends upon it. You cannot hope to climb the mountain without it. Bouldering might be a fun sport when the wall is only 15 feet high, but only a foolish climber would attempt a life or death climb without knowing the route that he has to take to safety or even knowing if he's prepared to complete it. Jesus assures us in our passage this morning that we do have something that can guide us to safety. Scripture can see us through to the end. It shows us the route and lets us know just which handholds to use. Why don't you turn to Matthew 5? That's the passage we're looking at today. It's Matthew 5, verses 17 uh, through 20. And as I'm reading the passage, I want you to pay attention to this, this idea of Scripture and its Um, its value and its importance and how it's a guide. Pay attention to how Jesus views and treats Scripture. Now, in between the sermons that Chet's been preaching on Proverbs, we've been doing a sermon series on what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'm continuing that series today. We're going to look like what 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 it looks like to follow Jesus by looking at the Bible's place in our lives. If we hope to follow Christ, then we must know how that involves reading and using the Bible. Bible intake is considered a spiritual discipline for a reason, and few places in Scripture make that clearer than this passage. So please follow along with me as I read it. Again, it's Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be looking at a lot of different texts today. Um, I'm going to be incorporating a lot of different passages, but this passage is going to be our foundation. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Um, this is taken from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's shortly after it's gotten started. Um, and in it, we see Jesus treating the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, with the utmost respect and reverence. He's treating it as though it is perfect, authoritative, and absolutely necessary for his listeners. Jesus lived his life in complete obedience and accord with the scriptures, and he commends us to do the same. Jesus climbed his mountain, in a sense, with the support of scripture, so we must do the same. We must recognize that we hope to follow, if we hope to follow Jesus rightly. Our journey through the Christian life will fail without the guidance of scripture. And if you take nothing else away from the sermon, that's what I want you to take from it. If we want to follow Christ, we must be guided by scripture. The way he treated it in his own life leaves us no room to think otherwise. If we ignore the Bible, our journey will come to ruin. We will perish on the mountainside. However, if we devote ourselves to knowing and obeying the Bible, we will surely reach the mountaintop where he is and where glory and joy indescribable await us. In our passage, Jesus treats the scriptures as his own story and authority, as we'll see. And those are the two aspects that we're going to work through um, in our texts. First, we're going to be looking at how the Bible helps us to know Jesus. Then we're going to look at how the Bible guides us in following him. So first it's going to be, how does the Bible guide us in knowing Jesus? Then how does the Bible help us to follow him? Um, and both of those will show us that Jesus reinforces, not diminishes its value. And then finally, we're going to, given what Christ has taught us about the importance of Scripture, we'll consider how to keep it as our guide um, so that we don't set it aside and turn to other things. In other words, we'll look at how to practice we'll look at practical ways to develop our disciplines in Bible intake. So first, let's look at how the Bible guides us in knowing Jesus. Look with me again at verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So before dealing with, abolish, with the abolishing and fulfilling language, we will get to that, but it's important to establish what the law or the prophets is referring to, what he says here in verse 17. Here, Jesus is talking about the scope of what he is referring to. If you're familiar with biblical language, then you'd probably already know that the law is most specifically the Torah. It's the first books of the Hebrew Bible um, that were written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, in that contains the law and the commandments that God gave to Moses, which were to be obeyed by the Israelites. Um, 
So we have the law and then the prophets. And a lot of the time, the, the word prophets was the term used to refer to the rest of the Hebrew Bible, uh, which was written by uh, the prophets. And so, therefore, we see that when Jesus is saying that he wasn't abolishing the law, abolishing the law or the prophets, he's saying that he wasn't abolishing any part of the Hebrew Bible. All of it, all of our Old Testament was not abolished by him. Um, he, he fulfills all of the Old Testament, as we'll see. Now again, as I was saying, what does abolishing and fulfilling mean? We don't really use the language of abolition very often in our typical conversations. And so not everyone might be familiar with what that means. Uh, to abolish is to put an end to a system or practice. And so um, Jesus is claiming here that he did not come to put an end to the Old Testament system Rather than put an end to it, he fulfilled it, as he says in verse 17. But what does that mean? In what way does he fulfill it? Jesus is claiming that all of the Old Testament, all of the system, all of the laws, all of the rituals laid out in the Mosaic law, everything points to him. That's what he means by fulfilling. He's saying, I did not come to replace the Old Testament. I didn't come to make it obsolete in the sense that it is worthless and we're starting over and I'm giving you a new message. I'm here to confirm it. I'm the person that it was meant to direct your attention to all along. All of those laws were meant to point to me. All of the prophecies are meant to point to me. Now, the implications of that are enormous on, enormous on how we understand and interpret the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that everything in it is meant to help us understand and to know him better. The commandments in the law point us to his character because they are an earthly reflection of his character. He is God and it is the reflection of God's character. And so we know more of Christ when we pay attention to those. Plus, Jesus himself obeyed every command exactly how it was intended to be obeyed. That is why he spoke with such authority when explaining his commandments to his disciples. It should come as no surprise to us that immediately after our passage in the Sermon on the Mount, so verses 17 through 20, it should come as no surprise that he proceeded immediately to explain how to more fully and deeply understand the commandments. He knew because they were, they were originally shaped and determined by his own character. The prophets also point us to Jesus because all of the prophecies find their ultimate conclusion and completion in him. He upheld them. They came true because of him. Even prophecies that were fulfilled in other people before his birth were meant to point to him. Think about the prophecies about David. Prophecies claiming that David would be king were fulfilled when David became king. Yes, that's true. But they were meant to draw our attention to the greater, more perfect king that was one day going to come from the line of David. So even in that, it was fulfilled in David, but it pointed to something even greater and better in Christ. This is what typology is. That's what, if you've ever heard the term typology when studying her, hermeneutics, that's what that refers to. David was a lesser picture of a greater reality that was going to come one day, and that greater reality was Christ. 
That's what he's saying in verse 17. But Jesus takes it even a step further with verse 18. Look with me at that now. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is making an incredibly comprehensive statement here. He's he's already given us a large scope in verse 17 by saying that all of the Old Testament points to him and teaches us about him. Now, he's making that even more expansive, even more comprehensive, and saying that within all of the Old Testament, there is not a single sentence or word that does not point us to him. Iotas, as it says, were the smallest letters in the Hebrew language, and dots were actually little symbols that were used to distinguish between letters. And so what we see here is every single word, every single letter, in fact, is meaningful and intentionally given by God to, to point us to Christ. He's saying more than just overall the commandments and the law tell you what I'm like. Um, In general, the prophecies do so as well. Um, But there might be a couple exceptions. Maybe some of the verbiage and details um, don't necessarily come from God. They come just from the the author of the text. Um, They they were more just added by the author to help the, the text flow better that God had given him. No. Jesus is saying way more than that. He's saying that every single word in every single commandment is purposefully included in scripture to teach us about him. He's telling us that every single word and every single in every single prophecy and narrative is intentionally written. There's nothing arbitrary or needless in scripture. It is all from God and it is all of infinite value and worth because of that. Now, This is where you could or should be thinking to yourself, really, Kyle? Are you really sure that every single sentence and word is necessary and given to us by God? Nothing extra got slipped in? Like, for instance, maybe 1 Chronicles? If if you're one of those stalwart few who started a Bible reading plan by deciding, I'm going to start from the very beginning of the Bible and make my way through... Um, and you're one of those few people that actually made it to First Chronicles, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who aren't those few, um, and maybe haven't looked at First Chronicles in a long time, it's the first nine chapters of it are genealogies. It is nine chapters of names after names after names. Over 900 of them, in fact, I looked it up. And the reality is a vast majority of those people in those genealogies are never spoken of again in scripture. All we know about them is their names and who their fathers and sons are, is what it comes down to. Are are we to believe that every single name in that list is really important, significant, and meaningful to us? They weren't just the result of some, like, overly zealous scribe that really likes family trees? Um, The answer is yes. They are absolutely significant because they each remind us of God's continuous preservation of his people. 
specifically through David's line and the covenant he made with him um, through history. That's what we see in 1 Chronicles 1 through 9. Every single one of those names should remind you that God cares about and preserves each and every one of his people because he promised he would. Even if we don't know any of those people on the list ourselves, God does. And they matter enough to him that he preserved their names in scripture for all time. They matter deeply to him. That alone says a tremendous amount about what God thinks of us as his people. Ultimately, though, even that points us to Jesus because we are only able to be God's people because of Christ and his sacrifice. So that's just an example of what Jesus is getting at in verse 18. God is faithful to fulfill every single promise that he made in the Old Testament because Jesus came. The promises and covenants that God made with Abraham and David could only be fulfilled because Jesus obeyed the law and upheld Israel's end of the bargain. Otherwise, they would have been forsaken. Even going back all the way to Adam and Eve, we see how God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. After the fall, God promised that the son of Eve would one day come and defeat Satan. Jesus did defeat Satan. He defeated sin and death when he died on the cross because he took their power to condemn us permanently. Ultimately, Jesus is the greatest display of God's faithfulness because he ensures that all of God's promises and intended plans will come to pass. Now, so much more could be said about our verses and what they teach us about interpreting and understanding the Old Testament. My intention is not to focus, though, on Old Testament hermeneutics and biblical theology, as great as that is, and I would love to talk about that. But that's not what I'm setting out to do. I want us to focus on what Jesus is saying about the scriptures in relation to how they guide us in our knowledge of him, how they help us to know him. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus is telling us that everything in Scripture teaches us about who he is, what he is like, and what he has done and will do. In a sense, he is saying, this is where you go if you want to learn about me. This is where you go if you want to know what I came to do for you. If you want to know me, read my word. Read Scripture. It's our perfect, authoritative guide to knowing Christ. Nothing else in this world compares to it. Nothing else that we have is perfect and without error like this because it comes from God, and so it is without error and fault. Nothing else is absolutely authoritative for the same reason. Nothing else is certain and true like Scripture is because nothing else is given to us directly from God and is purposefully meant to teach us about him. We know this because Christ himself tells us that. And the reality is that this is expanded and even clarified even more in the New Testament. Now, at the time that the Sermon of the Mount was was preached, none of the New Testament documents had been written yet. But what we can be sure of is that Jesus' statements about the Old Testament scriptures here apply just as much to the New Testament Jesus' own disciples knew this and expressed this in their own writings. 
They knew that their letters were divinely inspired just as the Old Testament was and that they were considered authoritative for the church just like the Old Testament was. Peter, when speaking about Paul's letters in Second uh, Peter 3, he mentions how false teachers were twisting them and misusing them like they were the other scriptures. He doesn't say like scripture as to imply that um, Paul's letters were in a different sort of category. So you have scripture and then Paul's letters is something different. He says the other scriptures. He's, he's saying they are one and the same. They fit into the same category. They are on an equal level. He even affirms this is true of his own writings when he says that they are words of prophecy and spoken from God because they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Also consider the words of Christ in Revelation 22 that John writes down when he says that the book is prophecy and that the words are trustworthy and true. The reality is that Christ's words regarding the Old Testament are are true for the entire Bible both the Old and New Testaments. In fact, the New Testament is even clearer in a sense in helping us to understand Christ because it speaks more directly about him. It all guides us and helps us to know Christ better. Jesus assures us of that in Matthew 5, and that should compel us to turn to it as our guide. Why would we want to go anywhere else? Seek the word and you will find Christ there. If you want to know him better, that's where you must go. I hope by now you're starting to see how precious the Bible is. We can't know our Lord rightly without it. And it doesn't just give us good ideas. It tells us exactly what is right and true, what we need to know. Through it, we learn the gospel. We learn that Jesus, what Jesus came to earth to do. We see how his, how his presence here, his sacrifice was planned from the beginning that God would display his love through him, that Christ would come, take on flesh, that he would live a perfectly obedient life and not deserve the death that he faced on the cross. But he faced that death and in so doing, taking our punishment upon himself so that we don't have to face the wrath of God for our sins. He took them upon himself and he allows us to be united with him by faith so that we can receive his righteousness. This tells us so much about the God that loves us and cares for us and has given us grace. This provides us assurance and hope in defeating our sin. And it provides us comfort when we return to our sin. There's so many ways in which knowing more about Christ helps instill in us hope and joy and peace. And again, the word is the place to go for that. We cannot know salvation or our savior apart from the word. And we cannot understand them more deeply if we don't continue to return to it and to study it continually. But the Bible is not just a guide for teaching us about Christ and his work. It also teaches us in a sense about ourselves. It teaches us how to follow Christ It's a guide for us in following him as well. So now look with me at verses 19 and 20 in Matthew 5. They say this. Therefore, whoever 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is making a claim here that builds off of what we learned in verses 17 and 18. What he is saying amounts to this. Because the Bible is a perfect guide to knowing me, it's also a perfect guide for following me. Jesus obeyed each and every commandment in Scripture without fault or mistake. He was sinless and without error. Therefore, if you want to be like him, and to, you must obey and follow the commandments as well. Jesus is calling us to be committed to total obedience to Scripture rather than just parts of it. Notice what he says, what he's saying about the least of these commandments. Jesus is acknowledging that some commandments are, in a sense, less serious than others that are more weighty. Some sins are worse than others, uh, and the fact that their consequences are worse. Jesus is recognizing that. And therefore, some commandments are weightier because they help us avoid those worse sins. For instance, uh, the command to not murder is more serious than the command to tithe because disobedience to the first has far worse consequences than the second. Yet Jesus condemns those who therefore say that the second does not need to be followed as closely, regardless of whether it is um, in a sense, a big or small commandment, he commands us to obey each and every one, that we would strive to uphold all of them. Jesus is tremendously reinforcing the importance of knowing, knowing the Bible so that we can obey its commands and conform our lives to it. Now, some people might argue that this sounds really close to legalism. I can relate to that line of thinking. I've been there. The thought is, why are we putting so much emphasis on obedience? Isn't the gospel about being saved by grace, not works after all? This feels like we're diminishing grace when we're striving so hard to obey. As I said, I get that. I've wrestled with that same line of thinking. But if Jesus' words in verses 19 and 20 weren't enough to silence that thought, consider what he says elsewhere in Matthew in Matthew 23, verse 23 and 24, he criticizes the Pharisees. He condemns them for focusing on the lesser commandments while disregarding the weightier ones. But know what he says. Let me read it. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Notice that? He says that you ought to have obeyed the weightier commands while also obeying the lighter ones. They were not to neglect any of them. True, we are not saved by our good works. We are saved by grace. Praise God for that. But we are still nonetheless saved for them, to do them. Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
The reality is this. The deeper you understand the grace you have been given, the deeper your desire to obey will be. The deeper your understanding of the gospel gets, the more you'll realize that your obedience is not legalism, but rather evidence of God's grace in your life. Yes, someone can be legalistic in their attempts to obey the commandments of Scripture, but they most certainly don't have to be legalistic in that pursuit. And if someone is being legalistic about commandments, their issue is not that they're focusing on obeying the law too much. The issue is that they're not focusing on Christ enough as they're doing it. Now that might seem like I've kind of taken a digression from what I was saying, but I hope that all of this serves the purpose of helping you see what, what Jesus is getting at in our passage in 19, verses 19 and 20. As followers of Christ, we are called to be like him. And that means being obedient to scripture. Those who will be great in the kingdom of heaven are those who do not assume upon grace and go on sinning. But instead, it's those who seek to obey scripture and follow Christ in righteousness, knowing that they're not doing it to be saved, but because they get to display their love for their savior. There are men and women who have been transformed by the gospel and yearn to be holy and righteous like their Lord and God. In fact, Jesus warns in verse 20 that if you do not understand this, you will remain ignorant like the scribes and Pharisees. Then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven at all. You will prove through your actions that your love for the world and sin is greater than your love for Christ. But again... That doesn't need to be the case. Seek to know the Bible. Seek to know scripture and the commandments so that you can follow them and obey them and be like your Lord who freed you from sin so that you might live for God. Let the word be your guide for following Christ. The message and guidance you will get from the world will only lead you astray. The Bible guides us towards humility, mercy, sacrificial sacrificial love, and patience. Those, who, those are the characteristics of God. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. All other counsel will guide you towards selfishness, comfort, and idolatry, ultimately. It will guide you towards sin and death. Now, let's consider an example. Take, uh, take the issue of homosexuality, for instance. Many of you may already know this, but for those of you who don't, I actually struggle with same-sex attraction. Given the social movements going on right now in America, that means that each day I wake up, I know I'm going to face a barrage of messages from the world telling me to do anything and everything but follow Christ and obey God. The counsel of the world is telling me to give in to my desires it's telling me to do whatever my impulses tell me to do. The world wants me to idolize my sexuality and ultimately submit myself to it as a slave. It doesn't care to tell me, though, that that will lead to my destruction. That doesn't lead to pleasure and joy. That leads to death. The Bible has an altogether different message for me, though. Through the Bible, God reminds me that I am his child who is made to live for something far greater than sex. I was made to live with and for him and to experience the incomparable joy 
and pleasure that comes from being in his presence and living according to his good and right design. The Bible reminds me that the world is fallen and corrupt and that there are things in it that will seem good to me, but they're not. They only lead to death. And instead of encouraging me towards those things, those things that provide temporary relief, temporary pleasure, but lead to death overall, instead of leading me towards those things, Scripture encourages me towards righteousness and eternal life. It reminds me that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As Jesus himself says shortly before our passage in Matthew. It, it, scripture does call me to forsake some of my earthly pleasures. But is it really forsaking anything at all if what I'm really doing is just giving up a penny so that I can have a million dollars? Now that was a personal example. But the reality is, you all face the same struggle each day. It might not be with same-sex attraction, but instead it could be sexual promiscuity or pride or laziness. We all face these temptations and we all hear counsel from the world that puts us in the direction of death and destruction, not towards life. When we are tempted to sin, do we choose the counsel of the world or do we choose the counsel of the word? Do we choose the liar or the one who is perfectly trustworthy and meant for our good? If we do not immerse ourselves in the Bible, then we have no guide towards what is true. But praise be to God that he has given us his word, that we might follow Christ by it and pursue life rather than death. It should come as no surprise to us that Jesus responded to each of the temptations of Satan with scripture. We must do the same. Nothing else will point us in the right direction. Psalm 119 says, how does a young man keep his way pure? And it answers itself with, by guarding it according to your word. In the darkness of the world, the Bible is our guiding light that shows us the direction to go so that we might follow Christ. So, with all that being said, how do we keep the Bible as our guide? We've seen why it should be, because it helps us to know Christ and to follow him, but how do we keep it that way? How do we practically devote ourselves to it? If our journey through the Christian life will fail without its guidance, how do we make sure that we're guided by it? Now that's what I want to consider last. If we're going to keep each other and ourselves under the guidance of the Bible, we must commit ourselves to the spiritual discipline of Bible intake. That includes Bible reading, studying, memorization, listening to it, praying through it, all of those types of things. I would like to argue that if you want to develop better discipline in, the, in Bible intake, um, there's three points that I want to give for why, how we can do that, how we can develop better discipline in that. The first one is that we must acknowledge our need for it and its value to us. So again, acknowledge your need and its value. And that's exactly what the last two points that we've talked about were about. We need scripture and it is of infinite worth because it helps us to know Christ and to follow him. And we are so prone to forgetfulness. 
we have to acknowledge that. Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 3 says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The author of Hebrews is warning us to pay attention to the gospel and to the truths of scripture because we will drift away from them otherwise. This should come as no surprise to any of us. If we, if I can't tell you how many times I'll read a passage and be blown away by it. Um, Not because, um, and I will have read it numerous times before, but I'll just forget what it says. I'll forget the, the true and precious realities that it teaches me about. And I'll come back to it and be like, oh, how did I forget this? But I do. I experience that all the time. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. We are prone to forget the word. We are prone to forget the promises of God. We are prone to forget who Christ is. And so we must acknowledge that. We must acknowledge our need for it. And therefore, we must devote ourselves to it. We also want to recognize its value. Just like we won't turn to Scripture if we don't see our need for it, we won't turn to it if we don't see how good it is for us. Just as Jesus reminds us how precious and perfect and authoritative the Bible is, in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, we must remind ourselves of its value. Look with me at Psalm 19. I want to read... Um, a couple of verses from Psalm 19. Um, it, is, it does such an incredible job of reminding us how precious scripture is for us and how valuable and beneficial it is for us. I'm gonna read Psalm 19, verses seven through 11. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant... Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This psalm, the passage we've looked at, so many passages of scripture show us how valuable scripture is for us. The Bible is such an incredible blessing that we will never appreciate fully. It comforts us when we're suffering. It encourages us when we're discouraged. It strengthens us when we're weak. It rebukes us when we need correction. It teaches us when we're ignorant. It makes us wise when we are fools. It guides us when we're lost. It produces thanksgiving when we are joyless. It does so many things. It truly is more to be desired than the finest of gold, the (laughs) finest earthly treasures. When I am anxious and and focused only on myself, the Bible is the only thing that will help me at times. It draws my gaze away from myself, away from my own worries and concerns, 
it helps me to lift my eyes off of my own chest and look at my Lord, to look at my God who is far worthy of my attention than I am of my own. Remember that and seek it. Seek the word for all that it does for us. It changes us. God promises that it will. His spirit uses it to sanctify us. Believe in its power. It is a continual grace to us in our lives that we can always come back to. So, that first one, acknowledge our need for it and its value to us. Then study it um, to know it and to trust it. So, at the very beginning of the sermon, I said that we're looking at how to follow Christ in Bible intake. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. This is why I tell you, do it. Be in the word. Read scripture. Memorize it. Take it. Study it. Listen to it. Um, There's plenty of Bible apps that will allow you to listen to a recording. I like to listen to it on my drive into work in the mornings. Um, That helps me focus um, my day. Usually I don't start feeling... I usually wake up not feeling very well in the mornings. And so a lot of the time I need something to help, help me remember what God has done for me, the mercies that are new for me every morning. I need that. And so I have to listen to scripture in the morning. And so an easy way to do that is to listen to it on the car ride into work. That's what I do. Find creative ways to do that for yourself. Just make sure you're immersed in it. Make sure you're in the word each day. It should be your number one priority. For many of you, that might seem like an impossible task, being in it every single day, studying it every single day, but I assure you it's not. We must trust Christ when he assures us that we can and should discipline ourselves in his word. Um, All other disciplines, all other, really all other areas of growth come out of this. If you want to grow, it's going to come from here. And so if you're not disciplined to go here, how do you expect to grow in those ways? Now, I know for many people, it's hard to be in the Bible because they don't know how to study it. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you aren't a bookworm. Maybe you read slowly or reading comprehension is difficult for you. I understand that. And that's all right. Be patient with scripture. Be patient with yourself. Get help from others. Ask about how to rightly interpret scripture. There's plenty of incredible resources that you can look to for understanding um, how to interpret scripture rightly. Um, if you look up stuff on hermeneutics, that's what you'll find. But talk to, talk to any of the guys that did the preaching lab. They'll know some resources for you to look to. Um, but yeah, talk with others. Ask questions. If you're not sure how to study scripture, don't just settle for not studying it. Learn how to do it. It is absolutely worthwhile. Again, your Christian walk depends upon it. Think about it this way. If you were poisoned and the only way that you could survive was by drinking a terribly tasting antidote each day or even multiple times a day, you would drink it. You know that your life depended upon it. You would drink it no matter what, no matter how bad it tasted, no matter how sick it made you feel, you would drink it because you know it would save your life. Treat scripture with the same level of seriousness. 
And don't forget that you're reading it so that you can live according to it and that you can trust it. I have found that my motivation for scripture reading is directly correlated to how trusting I am of it. There are seasons in our lives when our hearts are incredibly open and receptive to the truths of scripture. There's times when you will read something and you'll be like, yes, Lord, I know that's true. I see that. I know you are upholding this promise to me. Um, and that is incredible. And praise God when we are in those seasons. And I, I know for me, when I'm in those seasons, it's, I'm far more motivated to read scripture and to be in it because it provides such immediate joy and, and pleasure and blessing. But we're not always in those seasons. We're not always in those times. There's times when, um, there's, there's times when it seems like our hearts are cold and dead to, to the word. There's times when it seems like no amount of reading will impact us. I had one of those seasons recently. It is during those seasons when our perseverance is Yes, most difficult, but also most vital. Make sure to incorporate prayer into your time in the word. That helps. Pray as you read that you would trust by faith what it says, even if your feelings don't match it. Preach it to yourself rather than just listen to yourself. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about that in his book, Spiritual Depression. Uh, He talks about this idea of when there's a truth of scripture in your body when your feelings tell you that it's wrong. It's like, preach it to yourself. Don't listen to yourself when you're saying that it's wrong. Preach that message to yourself. Continue to do it. Pray that God would help you to believe it and to trust it. Trust its counsel over your own. Endure through those seasons and they will pass. The seasons when we struggle to trust the word, they're... They always seem like they're the longest ones. But if you continue to cling by faith um, and trust the word, seek to continue to know Christ and to follow him, it will pass. And a, a really practical thing for me, again, when I'm struggling in reading scripture, struggling to be motivated by it, um, when I'm more apathetic towards it, I go to the Psalms or I go to narrative, but particularly the Psalms. Um, a lot of the time you'll find Psalms that you'll resonate with. And so I would just highly encourage you, if you find yourself struggling to read the Bible, go to the Psalms. Um, spend, spend some time there. A lot of the time I'll read a Psalm before I read the, the passage that I'm actually planning on studying. That's what I was doing all this week, when I was preparing this sermon, before I would look at Matthew 5, I would read a psalm and just pray through that first before I would even come to this text. And that helped me so much. So, again, be creative. Find ways to, to be in Scripture even when it's hard. It is absolutely worth it. It's necessary. So, acknowledge your need for it and the value of it. Be in it and trust it. And then the last one, share it. Share it with others. Don't just keep what you're learning to yourself. Preach it to yourself and others. Share with others what the Spirit has been teaching you. Incorporate it into your casual, everyday conversations with other believers. Don't reserve 
biblical conversation for like weighty conversations. Um, let it let it let it saturate your entire lifestyle. If if your mind is on scripture, you're going to want to talk about it more with people. Um, and talking about it more with people helps you to think about it more. So share it. Um, let's that helps to spur both you you yourself and others on towards being in it. It will help you and those around you to know Christ better and to follow him more closely. It will help us as a church to be guided by the word, um, which is my greatest desire for us, honestly. Um, Do you know what scripture says about the Bereans? Luke writes um, that they were nobler actually, than the Thessalonians in Acts 17. He actually actually says that the Bereans were nobler than the Thessalonian church. And why did he say that? He said that because they received the word with all eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see that the teachings of Paul and, and Silas were true. The Berean church was a church guided by the Bible And I want the same to be said of Redeemer Church. Um, I want us to be one of the noblest of churches, honestly. I'm not trying to promote some sort of like inter-church competition or comparison, but I'm serious. I want us to be a a noble church that um, is highly regarded and highly, highly respected because we are eager to know and to study and be in the word together. Um, having the purpose ministry plan doesn't make a church noble. That's not what the Breens were known for. That's not why they were said to be noble. It wasn't because they had the best community groups and the most effective children's ministry. What made them noble was their pursuit of the Bible and their desire to align themselves with it even when they realized that they were wrong. I want that, I want us to be that kind of church first and foremost. Now, yes, I think that if we devote ourselves to scripture, if we're eager to study it, I think we will have the best community groups and the most effective children's ministry. I think that will be a result of that. But I want first and foremost, our greatest desire to be a church that is guided utterly by the word of God. I, each year, instead of doing, uh, instead of doing um, New Year's resolutions, I have New Year's prayers. I have a prayer for the year. I have one specific thing that I'm going to pray each day of that year for. And my prayer is for this, for our church. My, my prayer for 2015 is that we would be a church that esteems the counsel of God over all other counsel um, in our lives and that that would reflect itself in how often and how much we turn to it. Um, So pray that with me. Join me in praying for that and join me in pursuing that together. Um, I want us to be a church of members who are continually saturating ourselves in the word and testing all that we say, do, and think by the standard of it. I desperately want that, and I know you do too. 
I've had more than enough conversations with all of you to know that you are men and women that want to be guided by scripture. I know you want that. You know our journey through this life, um, kind of going back to the analogy at the beginning, the journey up the mountain. I know you know we, in that journey, we must be guided by scripture. So let's take up that mission together and follow Jesus by being in the word. It'll draw us closer to him. It'll draw us closer to our God and our Lord. It'll draw us closer together. Um, and it will help make us a church that glorifies him in all that we say and do and think. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, um, that is my prayer this morning. My prayer is that we would be a church that esteems no counsel over yours, uh, that we would submit our own counsel to ourselves to you, that we would just submit the counsel that others give us to you, um, that we would want to be guided by you above all else, and that we would search and know your word um, for guidance, that we would not settle for um, a life that is not guided by it, for that is a life that will go astray. That is a life that is perilously close to turning from you. But Father, let us be men and women um, and children who are, who are constantly seeking your word, that we would know Christ, that we would know the gospel through it, and that we would know how to follow Christ through it. God, I pray this in his name. Amen.